Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and I use she or they pronouns. Normally, I do this like whole intro thing that I record after uh, the conversation, but this is a, a special a special episode that I'm just doing as quickly, as quick turnaround as I can because of what's going on in the Pacific Northwest with unprecedented heat. And I want people to have information as soon as possible. So uh, please forgive audio quality on my end. Um, I'm recording this from the best place I had access to internet, which is right next to one of the busiest intersections in all of the tiny town of Asheville, North Carolina. Um, But anyway, uh, this podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and normally I put in a jingle here, but I'm not going to. Instead, you should just go to Channel Zero Network. I don't even know the website. You just Google it. I mean, come on, who's actually going to type in URL when you can just type things into the search bar? Um, go check out the Channel Zero Network. There's a ton of shows that might interest you. Okay, so uh, would you like to introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns and then a bit of uh, your background as relates to heat-related illnesses. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. My name is Guy. I use he and him pronouns, uh, and I live up in the Pacific Northwest on the Olympic Peninsula. And my background related to this, uh, I have been a wilderness educator and backpacking guide for many years, um, especially working down in the Grand Canyon for several years, so a lot of exposure to heat there. Uh, And I also instruct wilderness medicine courses. And so I teach and think about uh, bodies and how bodies adapt to stress, um, particularly heat stress in in this context. Um, Yeah, that's me. Hooray. I'm so glad that your skill set is about to become very useful away from the Grand Canyon and in the Olympic Peninsula, the rainforest that I I believe is not, is it, is it normal for you all to have 109 degree weather or is that abnormal? That is definitely abnormal. Yeah. Um, we sometimes will, will cross a hundred or triple digits over a hundred for one or two days in the summer, usually in late July or August. I cannot remember a time when we hit 108 degrees and certainly not in late June. Um, it is pretty hot. Yeah, I've I'm I'm from the Mid Atlantic, and now I live in the the South on the East Coast. And I have the only time I've been in um, I mean I've been in triple digits. I don't think it ever got hotter than 103, 104 the whole time I was growing up. And only time I've been in 110 degree weather was in, in Death Valley. Um, so I'm I'm worried about you all. Uh, so that's why I'm. I don't. Yeah, we're going to talk at a later point with uh, someone that you co-teach with about more wilderness first aid. But it mm-hmm. seems like wilderness first aid is suddenly might become urban first aid in a way that we're not. I'm not really used to, and maybe you're not really used to. Um, I guess to start with, uh, do you want to talk about like what are the dangers of heat? Yeah. So. Uh, I'll preface this by saying a couple of things. The first is that human the human body is actually really adaptable and resilient if it has time to adapt to a change in environment. Um, so people can handle really extreme heat if they have time to acclimatize to it. Um, but if we get these big spikes of heat coming in a place where people aren't used to it, um, we're jumping from the mid eighties, one week to 108, another week, um, then that becomes a lot more stressful on Hmm. body. Um, and then add on to that, right up here in the Pacific Northwest as a culture, as a society, we're not adapted to extreme heat. Most people don't have air conditioning. Um, most people's houses aren't particularly well insulated because in general, it's a fairly temperate climate. Um, so there's just not the either the time to adapt on a physiological level or um, to adapt our environments to really manage and handle this heat. Um, so that said, a few different things happen when we we get too hot. So our body, uh, right? We we sweat. We produce sweat, and that's the primary way that we cool ourselves off. Mm-hmm. And uh, evaporation is actually a very effective cooling mechanism. Um, if we have enough sweat and particularly if there's a breeze that is able to allow that evaporation to, to continue to cool us off. Um, Mm -hmm. 
as our body gets too hot uh, and we start to lose our ability to thermoregulate, um, <clears throat> we end up seeing a lot of different side effects. And so we used to think of this really clear progression from what we call heat exhaustion to heat stroke. Mm-hmm. And now it seems more like there's just a lot of different clusters of symptoms that appear when people get too hot. So things like nausea, vomiting, um, feeling really tired, feeling a little bit disoriented, feeling irritable, uh, some muscle cramps, particularly related to exercise, um, sweating, excessive sweating, but then also maybe some more like chills or pale, pale skin, um, clammy feeling as our body just doesn't tolerate the heat extremes very well. And all of those symptoms, all those symptoms are unpleasant, but fine. And the real danger is when our internal temperature starts to cross 104 or 105 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that point, our brain actually starts cooking. Uh, And so we see our, our mental process change, we don't think as clearly, our personality changes, and we're actually doing long term damage to our brains, and we won't survive that for very long. When you say very long, like, what are you talking about there? Like five minutes, an hour? Oh, no, definitely in the in the hours realm. Um, but the longer that persists, the more damage, the more permanent damage can be done to our to our brain and to our bodies. Okay. Um, it depends on the heat extreme. But so, so, And then once we lose that, once we start losing that ability to thermoregulate altogether, instead of maintaining a temperature that's elevated but not too high, we just kind of start to run away and we can't cool off at all. Um, and then, and then we need help from, from other people. We need a change of environment. We need to be cooled down really, really quickly. One of the, I I asked, um, I asked social media right before this interview, like on what, what advice people had and also what questions people had. And the thing that you just talked about, about how we used to see it as heat exhaustion versus heat stroke is very different. That is one of the things that most people were bringing up is like, make sure you know the difference between heat exhaustion and heat stroke with the idea, I guess the prevailing knowledge and what I had known prior to five minutes ago when you said otherwise would be that heat exhaustion is the like, Oh, this fucking sucks. And I should probably get somewhere cold real quick. And maybe someone can help me get somewhere not real cold, but like colder real quick versus heat stroke is like, you know, call paramedic, like get taken to the emergency room or whatever, because you're about to die or something. Right. Um, and you're saying that the line between these two is, is not only not uh, a clear line, but it's not even necessarily a, a specific progression as much as like, yeah, you yeah. refer to as different clusters. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so heat stroke. Heat stroke is really clear, and maybe that I, I misspoke a little bit there. Um, oh, I might have misheard you. Yeah, yeah. So, so heat stroke is very clear. That's when our internal temperature has reached 104, 105. Our the proteins in our brain start denaturing. We start doing. We start getting cell death in our brains um, and permanent damage. And the the easiest way to recognize that in someone is a change in their personality uh, or a change in their thought processes. Someone who was previously grumpy and maybe a little irritable and maybe a little hot, um, or maybe they were just fine. Now they're saying or doing things that don't make any sense. And that's because their brain is not functioning properly anymore. Uh, so heat stroke is a, is a pretty clearly delineated. The distinction is that there's not necessarily a progression from one to the next. You don't necessarily get this long warning sign of, Uh, heat exhaustion and you're feeling bad and then you feel worse and then you feel worse and then it's heat stroke that happens in some people but in other people it can just go directly to heat stroke uh, without this um, preliminary experience of feeling a little bit crappy and under the weather and nauseous and faint okay um so what do you do in each of these situations uh whether you're alone or whether you're with someone who's experiencing these symptoms? Like what do you do for someone who's suffering from heat exhaustion symptoms versus uh, heat stroke? Yeah. So, so in both cases, the problem is that someone is too hot. And so the solution is to cool them down. Um, So heat exhaustion, um, this cluster of nausea, muscle cramps, that just don't feel good. um, Fatigue, maybe some vomiting. That person wants to be cooled down 
So we should get into the shade. Uh, we should try to move to a cooler environment, change clothes. Um, but we're not necessarily, we have time to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, heat stroke, as soon as we see that change in personality or in mentation, we want to cool that person down as quickly as possible. And so the fastest way generally to cool someone down is through some amount of cold water immersion. Um, so throw them in a lake, throw them in a lake, but probably not throw them because if they have this altered mental status, they can't think as well. We're worried mm-hmm. about their ability to <laughs> swim, right? But, but yeah, get them in, get them in running water, get as much of their body in the water as we can while protecting their airway mm-hmm. uh, to cool them down quickly. And if we don't have a big body of water, we can put them in that's nice and cool. The next best thing is get them as wet as we can and then fan them because that mm. evaporative cooling consumes a, a huge amount of energy, which then cools the body fairly quickly. So if you think about you get your hands wet, um, they don't feel that cold. And then you get a breeze moving across your cold hands or your clothes are wet. You get cold really fast because evaporation takes more energy um, than, than simply being immersed in water. Okay. How does, um, how does being in a humid environment impact evaporative cooling and dealing with this sort of crisis? Yeah, humidity is a real challenge here. And that's the thing that we're fortunate uh, about here in the Pacific Northwest, where our summers are usually pretty dry. Um, uh, okay. <clears throat> but the, the more humid the air gets, the less effective evaporative cooling will be. And that means both that just getting someone wet and fanning them won't work as well. But it also means that our body's natural mechanism for cooling, which is sweat, uh, also doesn't work as well. And so there's this concept of the wet bulb temperature, um, which is rather than looking at what is the temperature on the thermometer, you put a thermometer inside a bulb and you cover it with a damp cloth. And they have fancier tools to do this now, but the principle is the same. Uh, Cover it in a soaking wet cloth. And then they measure what is the temperature that that thermometer reads. Wait, wait, a a bowl or a bulb? A bulb. Yep, wet bulb temperature, um, like a light bulb. Oh, you get the. Oh, you you put it inside a light bulb. Is that what you said? Uh, Any any bulb, any 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 spherical object, right? It's covered covered in a damp cloth. Okay. If the humidity is lower than a hundred percent, the temperature that that thermometer reads is Mm -hmm. going to be lower than. Um, lower than the air temperature, right? Because there's some amount of evaporation, which is cooling the air inside. Interesting. Okay. And so this is a way for us to understand what the actual threat of a any particular temperature is. Because once we get to 100% humidity, the temperature inside that bulb is going to be exactly the same as it is outside. Because mm-hmm. there's no longer any evaporation occurring and no longer any cooling. Uh, so, okay. And and the challenge there, and so this is this is how wet bulb temperatures are measured. Um, you can look up tables that will tell you relative humidity and temperature, and you can find uh, the wet bulb temperature at that intersection. And once we hit about 90 degrees at 100% humidity, um, or a 90 degree wet bulb temperature, which we could get with either um, higher higher temperature and lower humidity, or lower temperature and higher humidity, once that wet bulb temperature hits about 90 degrees, humans can no longer effectively function in any kind of meaningful physical exertion outside. Um, uh, okay. And, and even completely at rest, without any exertion, people will start to die within hours once you hit about 95 degrees um, wet bulb temperature. Which is what it would be at like 100% humidity if it was 95 degrees out. Exactly. Yeah. As someone who the inside of my house is regularly 90 to 95% humidity during the summer. Mm-hmm. This is, um, I know I'm not supposed to be worried about myself today. <laughs> I'm still mostly worried about y'all, but it actually is changing a little bit. My, my sense of the heat that y'all are facing. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, okay. So if it's like, like, do you have a sense of like when they're like, it's going to be 109 degrees, 111 degrees, 116 degrees in the Pacific Northwest this weekend, you know, or maybe you're listening to this three weeks later, I don't know, whatever. But um, do you have a sense of like what kind of wet bulb 
uh, temperature that is likely to be for people? Yeah, so so our humidity usually here in the summer ranges between like 20 and 40 percent. Um, mm-hmm. So not particularly high. And so I ran a couple of numbers before this show and it was looking like um, this Sunday when we're supposed to hit about 108 degrees um, during the peak of the day. Um, that'll probably equate to something around a 75 or 80 degree wet bulb temperature. Uh, which doesn't sound that hot, but actually is is pretty darn hot and really hard for the the body to tolerate. And so what that means is not everyone is fine. It means that the means by which we can fight this with like cold water immersion and, and fanning and things like that actually have a chance of working is what you're saying. Exactly. In cool. in places with low humidity, um, water and evaporation works really well to, to cool you down. Um, the problem with this, and this is what a lot of climate scientists have been warning about uh, for a long time, is that the tropical parts of the world, as we start to get increases in temperature, which are already close to 100% humidity mm-hmm. during the hot season, um, will get so hot that there's no effective way to cool down. Um, and then we'll see... Um, a lot, a lot, a lot of heat-related deaths um, because these parts of the world also don't have air conditioning right. and evaporative cooling is is completely ineffective. And so in some ways we're lucky up here so far because our, our summers are dry. Yeah, and there's, I mean, a lot of people listening don't have access to air conditioning, um, but I, but there's, there might be uh, like, you know, I know that some cities are setting up cooling centers and things like that. Yeah. Um, so there is some access to air conditioning in the Northwest. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about like not exerting yourself and things like that, like you're basically saying like, basically because when you exert yourself, your body heats up and that's bad. So it's like one of the main things people should do is like chill the fuck out and like not exert themselves yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's one of the best things that we can do is right. We stay out of the sun as much as possible. Try to stay as cool as possible, and just don't do, don't exert yourself. Don't do physical labor. Um, don't go for runs. Try to get out of your job if your job involves heavy, heavy physical labor um, during these hot temperatures, or or organize with your other workers because it's literally putting putting your life at risk. Um, yeah to be working in these conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, so if this kind of not fully covers, but, but gets at the idea behind like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, the other, the other thing that at least is on my radar to worry about as relates to intense heat is dehydration. And that's kind of a a separate threat, right? Yeah. Can you you talk about dehydration? Also um, our mutual friend says you have a good story about dehydration. Yeah, so, so I have I have a lot of rants that I could go on about um, dehydration and its its more evil twin overhydration, um, also known as hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. So so hydration is important. Our bodies function better when we're well hydrated, um, but luckily our bodies also have this amazing built-in mechanism to help us maintain adequate hydration, which is our sense of thirst. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so generally people should drink when they're thirsty and they should drink a little bit more if they're exercising or if they're in hot weather. Um, and if you're well hydrated, then you will, um, you will tolerate heat better and you'll be more able to adapt. Um, that said, uh, hydration doesn't prevent heat exhaustion and hydrating doesn't fix heat exhaustion or heat stroke either. The problem is right. just, once you've hit that point, the problem is just that you're too hot and you need to cool down. So it's like um, a separate problem. Exactly. They go hand in hand. You tend to sweat more, lose more fluids in hot weather and need to replace them. Um, the, the place where people get into trouble, we have this cultural myth of dehydration as the big killer. And like you've probably heard people say hydrate or die. And there's all these stories about people who athletes who didn't drink enough water and they died. Um, and that's actually not really the case. Um, most people stay hydrated enough um, most of the time. Mm-hmm. And 
they are getting dehydrated and they have access to water and they don't have vomiting or diarrhea that's sucking water out of them, they can maintain adequate hydration pretty decently. The problem, the area that we actually see a lot more deaths and a lot more severe illness is the opposite, uh, this, this problem of overhydration. And so um, for the last uh, couple decades until... Well, like through the 90s and early 2000s, there was a, a lot of rhetoric in sports medicine about the importance of hydration. And you have to hydrate and drink, 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 and you have to drink Gatorade and you have to drink electrolytes. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't, then you're going to die of dehydration. And actually what we were doing uh, was people were drinking too much water. And that changes the electrolyte balance uh, in our bodies. And it ends up making mm-hmm. our cells swell up. And we start getting swelling in the brain uh, that can be fairly rapidly fatal. Uh, and so most of, most of the exercise-related deaths, like ultramarathoners, hikers, um, that we used to think were linked to dehydration, most of those deaths are actually linked to uh, called hyponatremia, not enough salt. But the real mm-hmm. problem is that you've drunk too much water and you've diluted your salt. Um, Oh God. So we're telling people exactly the wrong thing to do. Being like all of those other hikers died. So you better drink more water. Yeah. And so you have to drink a lot, but when people get these benchmarks and they hear like, Oh, I should drink, I should drink a liter of water an hour. I should drink two liters of water an hour. I should drink a Gatorade at every stop in this race. Um, Mm -hmm. And people are basing their hydration on some outside metric rather than their own body's sense of whether they need fluid or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then we we tend to see hyponatremia, which is much more deadly and much harder to treat than dehydration. Um, so, like many other things that Western medicine have, has done, we have uh, invented a problem where there used to be no problem <laughs> <laughs> because humans generally are good at knowing what their bodies need <laughs> and taking care of them. Yeah. Okay. And like. Like I've never drank electrolytes on purpose in my life, right? Like, I mean, I drink emergency in the morning, but I think I do it for like vitamins, which might also be bullshit, but I don't know. Sure. Um, and people are always like talking about the importance of drinking electrolytes. And uh, I mean, this obviously sounds like it ties into it. Like, do you avoid hy- hyponitria? Um, I was going to just avoid pronouncing that actually, yeah. but I, I failed at that. Um, do you avoid that better? if you are also drinking electrolytes and like eating salty snacks and things like that, is there like, like how, how important are are electrolytes and all this? Um, so the, the answer is twofold, uh, like many things. So electrolytes Mm -hmm. are important. We should have salty snacks and our body needs electrolytes to function well. Uh, that said, there's just no correlation between drinking electrolyte solutions and, um, a lower onset of hyponatremia. There's plenty of cases <laughs> of, of extreme athletes, ultra marathoners and hot places who are drinking mostly electrolyte solutions. And the real, the real risk factor is just the volume of fluid. Uh, Damn. Okay. Absorbed, the, the volume of fluid drunk. Um, so if people like electrolyte drinks, they should drink them. I drink them sometimes and it makes me feel better. I think, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but but it's not going to prevent uh, hyponatremia, and we shouldn't think that we're fixing the problem of low electrolytes by drinking electrolyte drinks, because what we're actually doing is just adding too much more fluid to a system that's already overhydrated. Okay, so just trust your body and drink. Is this like how like one of the main things you learn like street medic stuff is that just water for everything. Like, you know, it's like chemical weapons and you fix it with water. Yeah. yeah. Water's great. It's amazing. Or whatever. So yeah, just water and, and not too much of it. You should drink okay. it thirsty. You should drink a little more if it's really hot out. Um, okay. You should eat salty snacks. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you want to focus on electrolytes, focus on salty snacks instead of Gatorade. I mean, you can drink Gatorade if you like, if you like sugar, <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. what it is. Uh, and other electrolytes and drinks are fine. It's not like they do harm mm-hmm. unless you drink too much of them and you think right. you're avoiding the problem. Yeah. Uh, okay. No, this is, I'm, I'm really glad to like be like myth busting or whatever and like getting past the like stuff you can quickly Google on the internet, you know? <laughs> um, 
so I have a, a lot of other questions from people. Um, this is, I think everyone's, I already said this, everyone's really worried. Um, what, um, and actually we've been talking about this a lot. We've definitely been talking about things primarily from the point of view of like not having access to, you know, air conditioning and things like that. Right. Um, oh, actually, before we leave dehydration, uh, yeah. what do you do about it? What do you do if um, both where there is a doctor available and where there isn't a doctor available for both dehydration and uh, the problem that shall not be named? <laughs> right. Yeah. Hyponatremia. Um, or we just call it overhydration, which is... Uh-huh. You call it hyponatremia and I'll call it overhydration. There we go. That's perfect. Okay. Um, so dehydration, the problem is there's not enough water. And so the solution mm-hmm. is they should drink some water. Um, okay, cool. And, and the way that... And the tricky thing here, right, is that we see people and it's hot out and they've been exercising and they say they've got a headache and they feel kind of nauseous and they don't feel good and they're kind of grumpy and we think, oh, you must be dehydrated. I'm going to give you water. Hmm. It turns out that the symptoms of hyponatremia are pretty much exactly the same as the symptoms of dehydration uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, And so we really actually should be talking to our friends, talking to the people we're interacting with and asking them some basic questions. How much water have you been drinking? Mm -hmm. Oh, you had two liters this hour, two liters the hour before, a liter before that. You've had six liters all day and you haven't been doing much. That's a lot of water. Um, Probably shouldn't give you more water. So the, the treatment for hyponatremia in its mild form is just withhold water. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple other things that, that we could look for and ask about is someone who's overhydrated with hyponatremia is likely going to have pretty clear urine, and they're going to be peeing a lot. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, yeah, I just have to pee all the time, and but I really got to drink water. It's really important to drink fluids. I'm peeing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good indication to say you should stop drinking water okay? <laughs> until you're no longer peeing all the time. Dehydration, that person wants water. That's the problem is there's not enough. And so they should drink some water. Um, and right, they, we might also inquire about the urine and they could say, yeah, I haven't been peeing very much. It's been really dark yellow. It's been smelly. Those are good indications that someone is, is dehydrated. Um, on the mild side of, of either of these, mm-hmm. it just takes time to fix. If you're, if you're dehydrated, you should drink water and rest. And if you're overhydrated, you should rest and stop drinking water. Um, okay. Once, once it gets more severe, once we see mental status change, someone is no longer behaving like themselves, that just means that their brain is angry because it's not getting what it needs. Either mm-hmm. it's not getting enough water in the case of dehydration, or there's um, there's swelling and pressure building up um, because of this hyponatremia, and in those cases, that person really needs to go to a hospital. Okay, what what would the hospital be doing? And I'm, I know I'm not like trying to encourage everyone to do everything yeah. by themselves, but I feel like it's like useful to like break open the black box with like medical stuff. Yeah. So dehydration, um, dehydration. They're going to be rehydrating. Um, via IV. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing that we can do in the backcountry or without access um, to a hospital. We don't have IVs, but we can rehydrate someone gradually um, mm-hmm. just by drinking water and, and reducing exertion. And as long as they're not continuing to lose fluid, either through sweat or through diarrhea or vomiting, um, then we can probably fix that problem. Hyponatremia is there's unfortunately not much outside of a hospital setting. Once it's advanced to the mm-hmm. stage, that someone's mental status is changing. There's not much that we can do. And this is one of the reasons it's more fatal mm-hmm. uh, dehydration in an exercise context. Um, because you let them with leeches. <laughs> yeah, we can't do that. Um, oh, fuck. What they, what they end up doing in a hospital is giving someone a lot of saline intravenously, mm-hmm. um, to change the the electrolyte balance of their blood. And we just can't do that quickly or effectively um, orally. So we can definitely give someone salt, um, but we should know that if they're, if it seems like a severe case of, of hyponatremia or overhydration, um, that really what they need is a hospital intervention. Um, okay. and, and we should prioritize getting them to that hospital instead of trying to, to do it ourselves because there's just not much we can do 
uh, unless we're that's right that's way above my pay grade is is measuring someone's blood ph and blood chemistry and tinkering with it and injecting yeah. different solutions into them and so this sounds like it, these are problems related to heat but the um but dehydration and overhydration are like more less directly the problems that we're like specifically worried about this coming weekend. Cause it sounds like it's like more athletes and things like people who like are fucking with things in that way. Or is this like, are a lot of the people who are potentially going to die because of a massive heat wave? Is it mostly heat stroke or is it also dehydration and overhydration? Yeah. So, so in globally in, in heat waves, um, the largest deaths are, heat stroke related mm-hmm. uh, or heat stress related um, and largely in in populations over 60 years of age um, just because as as we age our bodies just become uh, less adept at thermoregulating and we're have a, a harder time adapting to stress okay uh, certainly people who are really worried about the heat and think that the solution is to drink a lot a lot a lot of water all day long are putting mm-hmm. A danger um, of hyponatremia, and certainly someone who's working outside and sweating a lot and doesn't have access to water, or maybe they're houseless um, and don't have shelter and don't have a place to stay cool and don't have good access to clean water. I think we could see dehydration set in and be exacerbated by the heat. Okay. Um, but the, the major killers, statistically, are heat stroke. Okay. Um. What what should someone who's listening to this who's experiencing houselessness or someone who cares about people who are do besides like, I mean, I guess like pressure cities into having cooling areas, invite people, if you have AC, like inviting people in, um, you know, like, or are there like uh, specific, yeah, yeah. What, what would you suggest? Yeah. So there's like, there's a couple, I mean, those are both really important and great uh, and we should do that. Um, a couple of other things that, that we can do, um, that anyone can do to, to adapt to heat better. Um, right. Maintaining good hydration, but not too much salty snacks. All of these things will help with our water balance. Um, staying in the shade as much as possible and then trying to have a water source, even if it's just a spray bottle and like the ability to spray yourself down, right? Spray your face down, spray your clothes down with a little like $1 spray bottle that you get from the dollar store and you fill up and you can just spritz yourself and evaporate and that will cool you down. Um, right. Damp bandanas around the neck, um, on the head, even getting your clothes soaking wet in this mm-hmm. more dry environment will work because all the evaporation of those clothes, that clothing um, is going to cool your body quite a bit. Another thing that we see in urban environments um, is usually with all of the pavement and the asphalt and the buildings and the lack of tree cover, we'll see temperatures that are 10 to 15 degrees higher in urban centers than they are um, in surrounding forests or green areas. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about, is it possible to get to a park? Uh, is it possible to get to a place with trees that has shade and the plants are through evapotranspiration are helping to cool the area a little more and they're absorbing less heat than these big blocks of concrete that just absorb solar energy and radiate it back out at you? Mm-hmm. Um, those will make a big difference. And then thinking about thinking about kind of the mechanisms by which we we gain heat and we lose heat. And so certainly radiation from the sun will heat us up really fast. And we can, we can partially mitigate that by wearing uh, light-colored clothes that covers all of your skin. Mm-hmm. So loose-fitting, long T-shirt, uh, long pants, a big hat. Uh, you're actually going to be staying cooler in clothes like that than you will be in shorts and a T-shirt. Um, Does humidity affect that? I have this like general conception that like dry heat places are all about cover yourself from the sun, giving yourself shade through clothes is important. Whereas like more humid places, more tropical places, it seems like people tend to go with like just less clothes, maybe to like really make it as easy as possible to do the little bit of evaporative cooling they can do. Or am I like just totally off base about this? No, no, I think, I think that that's, that seems accurate to me. Um, I think that 
the more human it becomes, the the more difficult it is to stay cool, and the less the problem is like direct solar radiation, and mm-hmm. more the problem is just that ambient air temperature, all of the moisture hanging out in that air that's holding on to heat and then transferring it to you. Um, okay. So yeah, I've been I've been lucky to spend. Well, I grew up in Indiana, uh, which was very humid, but I've been lucky to spend most of my life in. Uh, places with fairly dry heat, which I much prefer. Yeah, Easier. like I'm just coming at this like entirely from this. Yeah. You know, we refer to it as like, oh, it's just the Baltimore soup, you know, in August or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, yeah, a lot of people talked about a lot of different like water methods of cooling. Um, besides, I mean, obviously, the like get into an air conditioning building is like the. Mm-hmm. the most bulletproof means or whatever. Right. But, um, like people talk about like what, like sleeping on intentionally wet sheets, um, like spraying your, like wearing wet socks or even damp clothes when you're trying to sleep. Uh, one person was talking about like wet the bottom of your curtains and leave the window open so that it like wicks up the water and then it evaporates. Um, so just basically doing anything that you can to encourage evaporative cooling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of the biggest thing. Um, and right. It depends on if you're trying to cool yourself or your house, uh, mm-hmm. less energy to cool yourself. Um, mm-hmm. and oftentimes here in the Northwest, it's actually more effective to, as soon as the temperature starts climbing in the morning, close all the windows, trap all the cool air from the night in the house and rely mm-hmm. on your insulation rather than thinking that a cross breeze from outside 100 degree temperature is going to cool your house. Um, but that only goes so far. And so yeah. there's also the the swamp cooler method, which doesn't work in humid places for the same reason. Um, mm-hmm. But you can make kind of DIY swamp coolers by putting a wet sheet over a box fan uh, and then blowing the, the air through that wet sheet. Um, okay. Yeah. That kind of answers one of the questions that someone asked, which is like, you know, obviously um, whenever bad things happen, only one bad thing happens at a time. Yeah. But uh, let's say for some weird reason, a bunch of dry heat might cause fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously the West Coast has been blanketed in smoke for the past several years. And like, so if smoke, it means you got to keep your windows shut you're saying then you just like basically focus on uh, air movement within the house within with fans and like personal cooling through dehydration. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Through, uh, through evaporation. Yeah. Like I would. So when there's, when it's not smoke season, which it uh, thankfully is not yet, although I think it'll be coming earlier this year based on our temperatures. Um, when it's not smoke season, I'll open all the windows at night once things cool off because we mm-hmm. do get a big temperature swing here. Even in the summer, it cools off at night mm-hmm. and then close them in the morning and try to capture some of that cold air during the night. During smoke season, just keep it all closed. Um, stay inside and focus on that evaporative cooling uh, if you need to. So get yourself wet, sit in front of a fan. If you don't have electricity, uh, right, people have been keeping themselves cool with fans for thousands of years before electricity. Um, mm-hmm. Just big hand fans are really quite effective at, at moving a lot of air quickly uh, without much exertion. Okay, so the trade-off would be worth it of the exertion of physical motion for the like evaporative cooling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it doesn't take that much work to fan yourself or to fan a friend, uh, as long as you're able to get yourself wet, right? If you're just mm-hmm. fanning hot air across yourself, um, that's not going to do any good. Uh, does that tie into the one of the questions I got that I just, you know, it's like a, a piece of information that people have that I don't know one way or another. I've never heard of it before. Someone asked, if fanning is bad in extreme heat, how do you cool yourself off? It's probably only saying it's like, you're suggesting it's probably only hot, uh, bad if the if you're not causing evaporative cooling, if you're not if there's no water on you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I looked that one up cause I'd actually never heard that before. And it actually is, I think it's a CDC, it's some government guideline. And I think it's from the CDC. Uh, and it's just really, it's this example of policies and advice being written in a way that's totally robbed of context and is more confusing to people than not, mm-hmm. um, which often is the case. Um, 
if you're just moving hot air across someone, that's definitely will be worse because air, there's some amount of convection, right? But we also create a little bubble around ourselves. And this happens all the time, a little bubble of temperature of air close to our skin. That's close to our skin temperature. And so it'll be slightly okay. cooler than 108 degrees outside if we're effectively um, sweating and evaporating some. It'll be slightly warmer um, in cold temperatures. And if that air is not being disturbed, um, then uh, then it'll help us thermoregulate just a little bit. And if we're moving really hot air across that, then that'll heat us up faster. In the same way that right, sticking your hand or your foot in an ice-cold stream with moving water you're going to get a lot colder than sticking that foot in the same temperature water that's not moving. Okay. Um, we'll build up a little insulated layer. Um, but huh. but that only, but, but you just, the, you fix the problem by adding water and then it's not a problem anymore because evaporation is, is much more powerful at cooling. Um, okay. Yeah. So if people don't have much access to water, basically it's like, get access to water. If you can't get access to air conditioning, you just need access to water. Is that kind of yeah, pretty I much think the that, deal? I think that's the the big, the big thing. Um, and so it's certainly we should have water to drink and maintain good hydration, but having mm-hmm. water that you can use uh, to cool yourself down, whether that's a stream, a river, a lake, or whether that's just carrying some extra water with you, mm-hmm. uh, you know that you don't need it to drink so you can use it to wet your clothes down. Um, and would Gatorade be more effective for this? Like it has <laughs> electrolytes in it. And I know electrolytes are good when it's hot out. Um, for cooling yourself down? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, okay. the, only, the only good thing Gatorade is for is, uh, yeah, lots of sugar. You're going to fuck up my chance for a sponsorship. Um, well, well, yeah, Gatorade actually got us into this whole bind with hyponatremia because they sponsored sports medicine conferences from oh, the 90s and 2000s. And, all the studies came out saying how important hydration was. And then we realized that people are dying all over the place because they're drinking too much Gatorade too much. Oh my God. It's literally the plot of idiocracy. (laughs) Um, Great. Cool. That, that makes me feel really good about the world. Um, Uh Fuck. Okay. um, Do you know much about like dealing with pets? Like um, I guess like what, like most, most animals don't sweat. Are we the only animals that sweat? Like, what's the deal with keeping uh, pets cool? Or- yeah, I don't know. I don't know as much about pets. Dogs, dogs sweat, but um, but only through their feet. Um, huh. They do sweat some, but they just don't. Right, they're mostly covered in hair, so they're not going to as effectively be able to cool themselves down. Uh. Um, cats are the same. I don't know about other animals, um, but right, you're not going to sweat if you're covered in hair because it won't be effective at all. Um, okay. And so for pets, it's really, I mean, a lot of it is the same. Stay inside, stay in cool, shady areas, right? Get some damp clothes or damp bandana or something on them. Um, you could, like, wet down a sheet um, or a bed. Like a dog, just get it damp um, and put that on the floor for them to sleep on. Um, I've heard of people putting a couple ice cubes in water bowls. Uh, I don't know whether that is actually effective at cooling your dog down, but they probably like it. Um, and then, and then avoiding exertion the same way. Yeah. Okay. Well, and okay. With the cold water and maybe it doesn't help, but it, it tastes better to them or something like, like people have questions. I have questions. I don't know enough about this. Like it, it seems like would be drinking like ice cold water kind of shock your system. Like if you're, even if like someone has heat exhaustion or God forbid heat stroke and you don't have access to a hospital or whatever, is it like, is there an ideal temperature? Do you only want it a little bit colder than their body? Or is it like, no, no you, would, you would fucking put them on a glacier if you could. Yeah, absolutely. The, the big problem with heat stroke is someone's brain is cooking. And so we want to stop the cooking as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. And we do that by putting them in, in cold water. Um, and there's just not much evidence that um, putting someone in cold water from, from be an overheated position does any kind of damage to them. Um, we're not going to make someone hypothermic with 30 minutes in cold water uh, when they've been overheated. Um, we're not going to, yeah, they might gasp and a little bit, but mm-hmm. 
and we get that cold water on our skin and we have that involuntary gasp reflex and then we adjust to the water temperature um, okay. but it's not going to do any damage and same with drinking ice water um the temperature of the water doesn't make a huge difference in changing the temperature of our bodies um mm-hmm. So it's not like hmm. drinking ice water will cool us faster than drinking warm water. Um, but I know that I'm more likely to drink water when it's hot out if the water's cold and refreshing. And so right. this is a way to, to stay adequately hydrated. Um, ice water is great. And you can right. stick it on your forehead and cool yourself down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's like, like sticky. So like getting the ice water on you is probably more important than getting the ice water in you in terms of. Yeah. If, if you only have enough. Um, yeah, but I mean, I just, you know, I, you get that big glass of ice water and it's condensing on the outside and the outside is super cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Like to hold on to it and stick, stick that jar on your forehead until you, until you've drunk it. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to get the story about dehydration out of you. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of, uh, what our friend would be talking about. The, the story that I do have, um, is, and this is this is just more of a, a general warning story um, about tunnel vision mm-hmm. and, and people who are convinced that they're right about something and they don't look at all of the facts. Um, but I was several years ago. I was guiding in the Grand Canyon, and I ran into uh, ran into a couple of people who were in um, fairly substantial distress, and they were a day behind their schedule. They'd gone about four miles maybe five miles in about 24 hours. Uh, and they were convinced that uh, there was only one person who was really having trouble and he was nauseous. He didn't feel good, a little unsteady on his feet, uh, really classic, pale, kind of pale, clammy skin, really classic heat exhaustion symptoms. Mm-hmm. And his friend who claimed to be a guide uh, with him was convinced that he had altitude illness um, because he was nauseous and had a headache, and because the okay. rim of the Grand Canyon is seven thousand feet, which is not actually very high, uh, yeah. as far as altitude illness goes. But they were convinced that they had altitude illness, and so they were descending into the canyon where it got hotter. And the only solution they thought was to keep going down, because if they dropped an elevation, uh, then they'd fix the altitude illness problem. Um, okay. And so, and so I tried to talk to them and convince them that it wasn't altitude illness and that in fact it was extremely hot and they weren't acclimatized to the heat because it was springtime and they had just come from the Midwest where it was 40 degrees outside and now it was a hundred degrees in the Canyon. Um, and they wouldn't listen to me. And I ended up running into a couple paramedics on the trail um, who were hiking behind me and caught up and overtook me. And they had also encountered this person after I did stopped them, did a full assessment, knew it was heat exhaustion, tried to convince the people to stop and rest and turn around. Um, But they weren't having any of it. They were convinced that it was altitude illness. Ran into a ranger later on who also tried to convince them to turn around. Um, (laughs) And I don't know what happened to them. He he clearly didn't die because I would have heard about a death in the canyon. Um, Mm -hmm. But certainly didn't have a good time and i think the the big takeaway there is we as humans i think as soon as we think we've identified what a problem is then we start trying to solve it and then we ignore all of the other evidence that suggests it could be a different problem um and so i think anytime that you're feeling bad or your friend is feeling bad or they're feeling sick and you think you know what's going on it's worth stopping and asking yourselves, especially if they're not getting any better. Mm-hmm. Is it actually this thing? Is it actually dehydration? Maybe it's hyponatremia and I should stop giving this person water. Yeah. Is it actually altitude illness or maybe it's really hot out and you feel crappy and yeah. we should be in the shade and lie down and rest and fan you until you feel better instead of trying to rush down to drop an elevation. And um, Yeah. If you had a whole group of people, you have five people, and they're all exposed to the exact same, you know, you're all hiking together, roughly the same amount of exertion, et cetera. Is everyone going to get heat stroke at the same time? Or is it like fairly personal about that? There's a, there's a pretty wide range in human tolerance for heat and exertion. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it can be all over the place. I would say that um, 
right, the hotter it gets, the higher the probability of heat exhaustion or heat stroke is. Um, but but it's but human bodies are really amazing and they're really adaptable. And right, we think of 105 degree internal temperature. Like you stick a thermometer in someone's mouth um, and they read the 105. We say medicine says that's heat stroke. Their brain mm-hmm. is dying. But there are also some ultra marathon athletes who run in really hot weather who have recorded internal temps of 105 and they're totally fine. God. Um, okay. And that's probably because they've acclimated to that over a long time and they've actually been able to change their physiology and what their body mm-hmm. is used to. And so people, people have really different responses. And so we should be looking at um, how are people doing and asking our friends and looking for these, these little telltale signs. Oh yeah, this person's a little grumpier than usual and they're kind of ornery and they look a little pale and they're kind of slower to respond. We should check in. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, rather than thinking that the objective conditions are what's going to dictate um, when okay. someone sick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that kind of answers or starts to answer one of the questions that a couple people ask, which is like, basically what do you do if you're someone who just hates heat? Right. Like I, I definitely have friends who like they, you know, I'm always, I don't hate heat the way, same way I hate being cold, you know? Um, you think that's like, just like a, a lifetime acclimation and like basically the answer is slowly acclim- acclimatize rather than suddenly have a, what is it called? Like a heat hell, a heat bulb. I don't know. Some horrible name for what's happening to y'all. Um, yeah. Don't have the bad thing happen. Is that, yeah, is that, is it heat dome? They keep inventing dome, all of these yeah. new names for weather phenomenons that have mm-hmm. actually been around forever. Uh, yeah. Okay. But, you know, um, not that this particular heat wave has been around forever. It's certainly new, but I just think about the like Arctic bomb polar vortex. <laughs> That's really new. Now that we're finally all paying attention to the weather, yeah, all these um, new terms about it instead of I don't know, stopping emitting carbon and planting a lot of trees, uh, which would be time well, better. That'd, no, that'd be a lot of work. Yeah, it'd be a lot of work. It's a lot, a lot easier to name all of the problems and yeah, um, make some ad revenue off of driving clicks to your website. Uh, but I digress. Um, <laughs> yeah, some people don't like heat. I think that. Um, as a person who doesn't like heat, uh, and who also guided in the desert for many years, mm-hmm. uh, I think that acclimatizing makes a big difference. Um, and slowly, right. Go to a new environment. If you're not being confronted by one of these heat waves, you go to a different environment and you don't do your normal level exer- of exertion mm-hmm. and you just rest and you hang out and you expose yourself to the temperature and then you go and you cool off. Mm-hmm. And then you do it again, and then you do it again. Um, and you'll become more used to that, and especially if you're using other techniques to keep yourself cool. Um, okay. It's it's interesting. I think that I get grumpier with heat here in the Pacific Northwest than I ever did when I was guiding in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was I think a lot of it was um, acclimatizing. And, and having an orientation of, I know I'm in a hot place here, and so I need to change my behavior, and I need to change how I'm managing my body so that I can stay cool. Whereas it gets hot right here, and I think, I should just be able to do all the things I can normally do, <laughs> and now I feel terrible, and I'm uh-huh. mad at everyone. <laughs> um, and it's just because I'm too hot. Yeah. So it's like, a, maybe, maybe part of the whole answer is like, actually change your pattern of behavior. Um, yeah which actually ties into both the we're all going to die because of global warming if we don't do anything. And then also the, like what you talked about, about the person who is, you know, walking further and further down. Cause they were like, no, 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 no. It's, it's um, climate sickness, you know, or whatever, or not climate yeah. um, uh, altitude sickness. Yeah. And then like, I know that when I, when I do cognitive behavioral therapy, like the thing that we have to throw away first is I tell, I tell the therapist what's wrong. And the therapist is like able to specifically say, now I know what isn't wrong. Like, uh-huh that's your narrative. That's the thing that you like have been telling yourself. Um, yeah. and clearly telling yourself this didn't work. So, um, right. and yeah, which we need to do as a society, we need to actually change our patterns <laughs> in the same way that 
y'all in the Pacific Northwest should uh, avoid exertion. And as you suggested at the very beginning, um, work with your coworkers to uh, collectively avoid exertion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is easier said than done from someone who's sure. a remote worker on the East Coast. But, um, okay. Oh, uh, sorry. There's one more. People talk about, um, uh, I have like one question left. Food, drug, medications to avoid are caffeine and alcohol, like absolutely terrible anathema. If you take like um, different, uh, you know, different medications, is this going to impact the degree to which you're sensitive? And are there things that people can do about that? Yeah, um, there's certainly there's certainly some risk factors. Um, in general, caffeine and alcohol both just don't help the body adapt to any kind of changing environment. Um, mm -hmm. And so cold, hot, altitude, all of these things, caffeine and alcohol aren't going to make us feel better in. Um, whether that's a huge risk factor, um, I'm not convinced. Um, I'm still going to drink my coffee in the morning, but I'll probably make a cold brew. <laughs> yeah. And But I'm not going to drink coffee all day, and I'm not going to sit in the sun drinking beer all day. Um, some other, some other medications, some allergy medications and decongestants, um, have some linkage to just reducing the body's ability to thermoregulate and to cool down. Mm -hmm. uh, not, I'm definitely not a doctor. Um, and so if people are taking medication, they should, they should look at that medication specifically and look it up and, and just Google their medication and heat exhaustion or heat stroke and see what, see if there's a contraindication or a, or an extra risk factor there. Um, they'll probably get better, better information from that than from, uh, broad and general statements from me. Wait, I thought this podcast is, this podcast is your doc, not just your doctor, but everyone who's listening. Yes. Yeah. We are both doctors. I thought that was the basis of the, <laughs> uh -huh. okay. Okay. Um, no, well, that makes sense. Uh, do you have any like final thoughts, like things about like, you know, how are you feeling about this whole thing or, you know, things that we missed uh, talking about all of this? Yeah, no, I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we hit, um, I think we hit a lot of topics. I can kind of nerd out about physiology and, and bodies and illnesses for a while. So it's been fun to, to do this with heat. Um, I'm going to make a weird plug. Uh, mm -hmm which is I really believe in umbrellas in the summer for sun okay. protection. Um, so like silver reflective or light colored umbrellas, just thinking of other prevention techniques, mm -hmm. you can kind of carry your portable shade with you and thinking particularly about houseless people or people who can't access uh, cool areas, get a cheap bright colored umbrella and you've got your own shade and it'll help. Um, so I just wanted to throw that one okay. in there. I hiked with an umbrella in the Grand Canyon all the time. It's cool. awesome. Um, That's so goth. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Although you said bright colored, but you know. Well, yeah. Mine was silver. It was nice and reflective, but really any, anything that will reflect rather than absorb heat. Um, Could you tape an emergency blanket to one or something? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And then, and then beyond that, I just think that it's going to be hot here this week. Um, People up here are, I think, probably simultaneously freaking out more than they need to and not enough, um, by which I mean a couple of days of extreme heat are going to be challenging for people and we should take care of each other and look out for marginalized and vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. We're probably not going to see uh, a lot of deaths, um, huge, huge problems with a short heat wave like this. Um, however... We should be freaking out about the fact that it's 108 degrees in the Pacific Northwest in June, and this is really like where we are headed as a planet. Um, mm -hmm. And so we need to be thinking and adapting right now, and thinking about how can we, first of all, right, stop emitting carbon uh, and lock as much carbon as possible in the ground, um, and second of all, how can we change our environments and our behaviors to live in a hotter world. And working, yeah, uh, working forty hours a week in an urban concrete um, metropolis is not going to be tenable a um, couple decades from now. Um, when, right? Think about the think about 
Texas, um, right? And last summer they got that big cold wave and then they lost electricity and we had all these deaths because people could no longer heat their homes. And we're going to see mm-hmm. the same thing with, with heat waves as well, where we have brownouts and blackouts because there's too much electrical demand from all the air conditioners running. And so we need to be thinking about how can we keep ourselves cool without relying on air conditioning? How can we change our behaviors and our patterns to do that? Um, and how can we plant a shit ton of trees? Uh, yeah. Which is really not, not only because, because they fix carbon, but because trees cool the environment down, the local environment. They, right, evaporation is a major cooling effect, and trees evapotranspire huge amounts of moisture uh, when they're photosynthesizing, and all that moisture cools an area down. And so how can we convert these you know, giant, awful concrete metropolises into um, beautiful forest gardens um, yeah. so that we can survive and have food to eat, uh, and also so that we can cool the areas where people are concentrated down. And we, right, we see this with just disparities in, in heat-related deaths um, across the country, where people who are lower income or marginalized or of color live in areas that are more paved and have less access to green space, and they get hotter, and they're more exposed to environmental extremes. Um, so, yeah, we should... Uh, we should take care of each other in the coming week uh, and stay cool. And we should uh, plant a lot of trees and stop trying to pretend we can continue living <laughs> as normal uh, when it's not normal anymore. I like that because it, it covers it. You know, most of this podcast is about what to, most of this episode has been about like what to do in the very immediate short term, right. To solve this problem or make it through this problem. But the solutions like absolutely have to be long-term and ongoing and, I, I like that you tied that into that. Um, do you have a, do you have anything that you want to like shout out? Like any, anything you want to plug any, I don't, I don't know whether your medic trainings are public or if people want to like follow you, do you do social media stuff? Anything? You uh, uh, no, not really. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty non-existent on the internet. Um, I don't really have any social media. Um, but yeah, we do we do street medic trainings on and off in the Pacific Northwest. We haven't done one in a while. Um, hopefully, will again. Um, I will plug actually because I I'm uh, in the process of moving up all the way to the peninsula, and um, there's a there's an amazing new community project forming in Quilcene. Um, people bought an old theater there a couple of years ago, the Great Coast Guild Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're just starting some big fundraising campaigns right now to replace the roof and do a bunch of infrastructure upgrades so that it can be a community gathering space and a resource um, and hopefully a place that people who are all thinking about how do we, how do we actually live together throughout this um, climate changing world in the long term uh, can encounter each other. And so uh, Great Coast Guild Hall could definitely use some dollars. Uh, if you Google that or look it up, they have a Patreon. I don't know if they've launched the big Kickstarter fundraiser yet. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons I'm excited about that project is because it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a social center, will be a social center and it's like collectively operated and it's within the, a pretty small town. And so it's a pretty major percent of that town's like social and cultural like I don't know, life or something like that in a kind of really interesting way. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I agree. It's absolutely worth supporting. Um, normally I do this whole like separate outro, but instead I'm going to make you stay on the call as I do my outro. So that way all of my files are in place so I can edit this as quickly as possible. Um, but uh, thanks everyone for listening. And um, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by supporting currently me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Margaret Killjoy. But in the very near future, that same Patreon will switch over. Uh, you won't have to do anything on your end to support um, a larger collective effort that's going to be doing more podcasts and more zine publishing called Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. And I'm very excited about moving to a more collective structure. Um, it makes uh, just, you know, the many hands make light work. Um, as long as many hands doesn't make everyone grouchy and get in each other's way. And, um, in particular, and also you can tell people about the podcast and that's the main way. And, um, you can, 
you can thank us is by, by telling people about it. But in particular, I want to thank uh, Sean and Hugh and Dana and Chelsea, Eleanor, Mike, Starro, Cat J, The Compound, Shane, Christopher, Sam, Natalie, Willow, Kirk, Hoss the Dog, Nora, and Chris for making this possible. Um, and yeah, thanks so much. And I hope everyone is doing as well as they can with everything that happens and stay safe. And it seems like maybe one of the main messages about this is that well, yeah, I guess Guy already said it. Uh, you don't have to freak out as bad about this one specific thing, but we need to freak out more about the larger larger things. 